0: Okay, here we go, here we go. Let's pray and let's go. Here we go, here we go, here we go. This is the first Sunday in Lent in Volkavit Sunday. You remember this is a famous Sunday in the Church for Lutherans because Luther was in the Wartburg, he was sequestered. He finally screws up the courage to go back to Wittenberg. He finds everything kind of coming apart. One of the really interesting things in pastoral care that he does, while he was away, remember that the Catholics had only received the host, they hadn't had the chalice, so there were some people who took control while he was away, and they forced people to have the chalice. And, you know, they hadn't had the chalice for five, six hundred years. So there was this great kind of outcry, and there were ins and outs, and us and them. And Luther came back, and he actually took the chalice back away from the people, which was very difficult for him because, um, you know, the Lord says, you know, take, eat, take, drink. And so he truncated the supper again. He took the chalice back for a while, to give people time to adjust kind of under pastoral care. So it's kind of interesting. You know, you don't, there's the way the text is written. You do the best that you can, and you need to be faithful to that. Within a couple of years, you know, he had, he had moved everything back to the way it should be. But this was all about, it's just an example of pace, which we talked about earlier. You have to try to go, you kind of push people as hard as you can, but not so hard that you break them. But the whole Christian life is about push. I don't know if you noticed in the margin comments for today, you know the margin comments. When they're best, they line up with the, uh, with the things that they're next to. So the prayer bit from now on is next to the prayers. But you had two really, actually three really good ones. The interesting one on the front cover, where it talks about how Jesus, how Satan sizes up Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Never thought about that. It's such a. He sees him. He can't quite figure it out. He thinks he's won, and then you know on Good Friday, not even on Easter, on Good Friday everything blows apart already on the cross on Good Friday. And if you remember, if you saw The Passion of the Christ a few years ago, you remember that there's this moment where the devil thinks he's won on Good Friday, and then it all it all comes apart with the great scream. So, um, but then there were the other two that were, um, one was about the 40s, but also then the one uh, by Boylan. That's one of the kind of classic care of the soul introductory books, um, the one where he says, you know, sometimes you can't see what's ahead, but you just do what you do, and everybody has fertile periods in their, in their prayer life, in their walk with Christ, everybody has very dry periods, it's extraordinarily important with the dry periods, what do people normally do when they have a dry period, what do they do? Give up, give up. yeah, people give up, they quit, which is the rational thing, this isn't working, I'll try something else. Well, uh, in the church, you never give up. So even in the dry period, even in the dark period, you keep going. Even when things are difficult, you keep, you keep, keep, keep going. And the Lord watches out for you. And you saw that both with Abraham and Isaac. I mean, that's just a, the most horrible story. Uh, it's unimaginable. Uh, it's just unimaginable if you're a parent. You can't imagine that. And of course, you're supposed to be clever enough, and I'm sure you are, to see. Of course, what Abraham doesn't have to do with Isaac, the father does with his own son. And so the Lenten, already Good Friday, you already had the Good Friday story in the Old Testament reading for today, right? And you're supposed to see that. You're supposed to see that how when Jesus comes, it's the big do-over. All the things we failed. You know, Romans is explicit. He's the second Adam, right? He's also, you know, the second Isaac. Uh, and gaining, you know, always... Um, The Lord will provide, and Genigo has insisted on the comma, the Lord will, the Hebrew is ambiguous, the Lord will provide, comma, my son, which he always saw as a prophecy toward the father providing his son. It actually is one way the text can be read. The Lord will provide my son. The Lord provides his own son. So, already we're in the midst of it. Um, I know you've kind of been up and down. But just by the by, you know, some of you wanted the prayer book. I ordered five more. They should be here by next week. It's been a nice little prayer book. If you yes. haven't used it, it's very, very nice. It's a very good book. Um, you know, I'll get five if you, you know, want one. Or they're they're easy to get. They're ten bucks. But it's a nice little thing because it tells you. I mean, the one yesterday was particularly good. You know, if somebody has sinned against you um, and wants mercy, you should be merciful. And then Saint Saint Francis, and if they don't want mercy, you should say don't you want mercy? You know, doesn't everybody want, which is not exactly the thing that we would normally say to people who have really hurt us. You know, we'd normally say, but, you know, St. Francis says, when you, especially in Lent, when you engage people who very have hurt you very deeply, you know, the question to ask them is, you know, don't, wouldn't, you la, wouldn't you like mercy? Which kind of means, wouldn't you like to be restored? So it's just, it's just a very nice thing. So sort of keep that in mind. So it's a very nice, it's a very nice time, these, these 40 days of Lent, to kind of clean up your life and have things work out again and rejoice in Easter. But already you've gotten in the Gospel, um, in the Gospel and also in the Old Testament for today, you've already gotten Good Friday you know, on the way to Easter. In fact, there's some sense that Jesus' Gospel today is a little resurrection. So he, t- he struggles against Satan, and he comes through, You'll see that again, of course, Good Friday into Easter in the Triduum. Wednesday night, as you know, um, uh, you know, we'll have Taze we'll have, um, here. So if you're free, Wednesday at 7, half an hour just to sit in the darkness and the quiet and just hear a little bit of Scripture and sing a little bit. Uh, in some way, the Taze stuff is your memory work. You know, you sing it so that you remember it. Um, the music was genius again this morning. Thanks very much. Are you, um, how are you doing with hearing uh, is hearing pretty well sorted out now? Uh, the speakers? Because we're about to make that permanent. We think we we think we have it figured out, so the guys will, the really cool guys who can do everything and make everything work, they're going to show up and make it permanent. But everybody's pretty much okay with the hearing? You can hear now? Okay. And if you, also, if you um, still need the hearing assist, if you talk to me, uh, I think what I'll do is probably get you, I'll get you a set of headphones, and you can just keep them, you know, take them with you so that they're yours, um, it's just easier that way. So if you use the hearing assist, if you let me know, do you like something over the ears, do you want a bud, whatever that is, let me know, okay? righty. there is money that is going to go to our dear friend Fred Gady, who is actually Vicar Fred Gady, even though for to some of you he was little Fred Gady, or Val's Fred Gady, uh, now he's Vicar Fred Gady, so, you know, he needs, um, you know, Fred's fluent in Spanish, and he preaches in Spanish, uh, and he's ca- kind of caring for that congregation in West Chicago. They need Spanish Bibles. So um, if you toss some money in, we'll buy Bibles for another congregation. you can hardly do a better thing with your money <laughs> than that. So um, and Fred, you know, there's hardly a better guy than Fred. So how could you, you know, you know, how could you go wrong? Okay. So um, and I'll give you this. And just as soon as we pray, you'll send that on your way, okay? So here we go. Invocavit. the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. That seems pretty straightforward. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. So you know what? Don't hold on to anything that is the work of the devil, because Jesus is going to be coming around to destroy that, and you could get your hands singed. It could go badly for you. So release the evil things, right? Open hands. That's why you pray with open hands. That's why... Peace be with you. You offer an open hand. You have nothing in your hand, but your hands get filled with holy things. It's even if you take the host in your hand, you make the sign of the cross, you know. An open hand is to be filled. You know, that's where shaking hands with people came from. Your hand is safe. You're safe. All is well. So, part of Lent is letting go of anything that is evil. That's why we've talked about, you know, not only giving up. It's one thing to give up meat on Fridays. It's okay. It's a good reminder. It's not that big a deal. It's much harder to give up Anger—it's much harder to give up. Complaint—it's much harder to give up. Revenge—you um, know—so kind of work your way up, insofar as you're able to see yourself through Lent. You'll just be a better person for it, you know. Jesus has forgiven you, and He wants you to live in that forgiveness, and that means to let go of evil. And part of it is the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. First John three eight. So it'll be a good Lent. Let's do that. O God, by whose Spirit we're led into the wilderness. Grant that standing in your strength against the powers of darkness, we may so win the victory over all evil that with singleness of heart we ever serve you and you alone through him who was in all ways tempted as we are but did not fail, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There you go. So that's kind of fun. All right. Uh, You know, maybe we'll get through this outline. Maybe we won't, but we probably should. You know, it's been... uh, Uh, You know, the outline for me is only the last best way I figured out how to do things. Um, You know, I'm not trying to get through it every week, and when they get together, they're always meant for more than one week. But I'm kind of at point seven, and if you have an outline, um, there's still a few back there. Take them if you need one. Uh, The copier ran out of Staples at about 8.07, so uh, you know I didn't have more than that, but I think we still have enough out there. That's part of what happens. So, um... You know, this was the great example of Western. This is considered to be, you don't have to consider it this way, but if you talk to art people, if you talk to religious artists, this Chimabue icon that's in Florence is considered to be the height of the Western kind of iconography. And there's a lot of things going on there. Um, you'll see some, some similar things in our icon. You'll see um, this kind of pattern, which is a very common pattern that sets off the body often in the icons. You'll notice that there are portraits here you know, uh, in fact, someday you know what I would hope to do is you know someday this is down the road when there's money to do it. I mean it is the ch- I mean this is saint John it'd be nice to have an icon of St. John, and then also uh, Mary usually comes along because Mary and John are the two that are faithful enough to stand at the foot of the cross it's going to be a very interesting story when everybody leaves, and Mary and John are still around. You'll also notice that, um, you know, usually have a text at the top, we have that, and um, you normally, you know, get the sign of the cross in other ways. You'll notice that this one is elongated in a normal, in a normal style. That's often a normal style, but the square style is not unknown. Our icon is seven feet by seven feet. Part of the reason we did that, we chose for a square style, was to simply... We had to capture the room, anchor the room. We were trying for intimacy. And there was a big question while we were doing this Is the altar going to be big enough to hold the space? You know, is the icon going to be big enough to hold the space? Are those together with the platform? Are they going to draw you near and pull you close? The whole, you know, the secret of having a big church is to make it feel like a small church. The secret of having a big room is to make it feel like a small room. People want to feel like they've come home. And that's what you're trying to um, give. Okay, so just as you, right, let's see, John, go ahead and see what we got here. Go forward until we get kind of, let's just use that one, because that's that's not quite finished, but um, it's, I think it might be the biggest, is that the biggest one we've got? I think it might be, that's a little, well, you can leave that up. And you've got, you know, also take those other ones back there if you want. So I'm just at point .7. Um, one of the reasons to put an icon in was probably because you, had never had one before. How many of you grew up with statues in your church? Yeah, In a Lutheran church? Some of you are, you know, rogue Catholics. How many of you, sorry, how many of you Lutherans grew up with statues in your church? I did. I had a big Jesus on my, above, at my, in my altar, right? Did you have that? There was a style for a while that everybody had that Jesus, you can tell. You know, things sweep through and people build how they build. But I had a, you know, very nice statue of Jesus. Um... You know, statues and and icons, and I picked a fight once without knowing it because I was talking to a Catholic about the value of icons. And I didn't know that, well, at least this particular Catholic sort of much-favored statuary, and he saw that as a divide between East and West. I don't think it really is. But um, in any case, you know, part of this was to just make make your life richer, make your life fuller. Um, You know, we don't have any statues, although we almost do when you have, for instance, the small cross on the back altar or on the, on the main altar, there's a small cross. I mean, in a sense, that is statuary. So uh, what you want to be able to do is, and this is part of the thing, fun thing with kids in the church now. You know, at 4 o'clock on Wednesdays, we have kids under fifth grade come and play with the pastors for an hour. And one of the, what we do is we spend about a half an hour um, explaining the sanctuary and about half an hour thumping each other with dodgeball. So, uh, but... In the explanation part, nothing is really learned in the second half, except that don't hit the pastor in the head because he's bigger than you. Uh, but in the first half, you know, basically what we're trying to do is make kids comfortable in any space so that they walk into a space and they say, oh, I know why they do that, or I know what that is, or I know, here's the reason they, you know. What you do is you build kids' confidence in terms of the faith when they walk into a space in the same way, you know. The world is such a big place, you know. If I just went to school now, I could learn some stuff about being a pastor. It's, you just, you, there's so much to learn. It is inexhaustible, you know, what there is and the creativity and joy. And you, the best is to receive that all in the way of a gospel. So we, you know, icons aren't as traditional Lutheranism, although they are around, but why shouldn't you always be kind of in the 99th percentile? Why shouldn't you be the people who have it and rejoice in it. And here's another thing that's just sort of changed for me, which I've realized, which is six months ago, you, people used to say, this is actually, this has happened a couple times this week, six months ago, people would say, they would call and say, will you give somebody a tour of the church? Now I keep bumping into people who say, I brought a friend and I gave him a tour of the church. See, that's a very strategic difference. That's that's you owning the place. You're able to say, "This is round. That goes with here. This is the font. There's six of those, and the and the the crucifix makes seven, and the top one makes eight. And eight is a holy number, and seven is a holy number. And this round here goes with that round up there, and this eight goes with that eight. And there's the back one, and th- there's a body because otherwise, you know, you forget that it's actually pierced with nails. It saves you. All those sorts of things." People are able to explain that. The same cross that's on the altar is in the lights, is in the back. Um, You know, all of those things. So, in any case, uh, it's good for you, I pray, that you just... I'm at point seven. You just come to the notion that icon is all over the scriptures. It just means image. And the point was not to give a portrait. You know, in the icon, what you see is human beings... And situations as they are in the light of God's action. So, last week we looked at the icon of the Transfiguration. And there's this remarkable thing that happens in that icon, which is Jesus is coming toward you, but he's coming toward you out of this great abyss. And he's not only coming toward you, he's actually the door to go back into that. On the other side of that abyss is the Father who sent him. And you sit with the icon. And suddenly, you're not working on the icon. The icon is working on you. It's like reading your scriptures. You know, you think you're reading scriptures. Scripture is reading you. You think you're saying your prayers. No, your prayers are praying you. What happens is at some point, you cannot get away from the notion that Jesus does the verbs. Jesus works on you. And then he sends you out to work, of course. But the primary thing that always happens when you cannot go any farther... You know, Jesus keeps going and carries you along. And that's what happens in the icon as well. So um, that's why people talk about an icon being written rather than painted. You actually write it um, in the way you write a book, or it's performed. It's not a fixed work of art. It's not meant to be a fixed work of art. An icon is a devotional tool. An icon is meant to change you change the way you think, change the way you see the world, change the way you feel. And so it's not it's it's not a mirror, you know, it's a window. You look actually through the icon and you see something, you see something else. And in the end it does try to tell you what matters. Um just as God works through the human person who's painting, you know, God seeks to work on you as you view the icon. And so when you come to it, and I don't know, you know, one of the deep regrets I've got so far is I haven't spent as much time in the sanctuary as I was like, even though I'm there every day. You know, just to sit and kind of look at the icon, just to sit and and relax with it, just to say your prayers, um, just to let it work on you as this great gift. It's not you looking at God, it's actually God looking at you. And that is the reason, although they can be, icons can be hung, you know, straight up and down, They're almost always hung with a tilt. And they're hung with a tilt because your normal position with the icon is that you'll be sitting. And if you hang it straight up and down and you're sitting, he's looking over your head. If you tilt him, then you can look eye to eye. See? So he's always watching you and you're always watching him. So it's this back and forth of two persons working together. And this is the reason then, and I'm point eight, this is the reason why especially if you go in an Orthodox church, but also in a Catholic church, if you go in an Orthodox church, they protect the icon like they protect the Eucharist, like they protect the Gospel book. And regularly you will see people get in line to venerate the icon, to make the sign of the cross, to pray in front of the icon, and even to kiss the icon. You know, because it's the way that... It's very, very interesting. I mean, this whole last week in... And I, you know, take the politics out of the situation of what happened in Afghanistan with the Korans that were burnt. Take the situation out. Americans take a Bible very easily, even we do, and we lay our Bible on a chair or even toss our Bible on the floor. You get kids in a Bible study, they all test their Bibles on the floor. Or you, even, even we, you know, we're not careful. We, I mean, a Muslim would never do such a thing with a Koran. I mean, they, now, I don't buy the way they understand what happened, but they have a much deeper reverence for holy things sometimes than we do. You couldn't get a lot of Christians excited about, you know, a Bible being defaced. Usually you can't. But you can get a whole, you know, nation. And I understand the political overtones and how people use one another and all that. I'm just saying, in general, when there's nothing going on, holy things demand respect. And we probably could do a bit better. And and we are here in this congregation. I'm talking about generally you know, bowing, making the sign of the cross, cross, um, bowing at the name, at the holy name. You know, all the things that we do, we're doing that because we understand that God is at work on us. And he's at work on us graciously, and he's knitting us together as a congregation. So, um, you know, we went through this last week, sort of nine and ten. Um, John, do you go, can you just back up like three or four and just give me the transfiguration one? There you go, just that. No, that's actually, that's okay, because you have this. But as you look at that, you see, now remember, Jesus comes out in this burst. The burst is gold, so you always have gold as kind of the highest level color. Gold is the highest level. White comes after that. You know, red is very common. In the original icon, this is deep blue. So blue is kind of like you could just keep going into it. There's kind of the abyss. There's no end to that. So you go through Jesus, through this deep blueness, and you come out on the other side where heaven is. So he's coming out, but he's pulling you in. And we talked about the reflected light. You see it here. And then you also see it in the three disciples, um, Peter, James, and John. And you kind of see various levels of discomfort here. You know, eyes are actually going this way. He's got half a face toward Jesus. Here's down and here. I'm flat on my back and there's no place to go. You sort of tumble through life. And this is how it is if you come up against God, you know, face to face, just for that moment. And, And they don't see fully what it means to, for Jesus to be holy. But just for that moment, you know, the text says he was as white as any whiter than anybody could bleach anything on earth. Just for that moment, you get the sense of what the divinity of God is like when it is unmediated, when there's nothing that is between you and him. And so Jesus comes out of this great depth, but he means to pull you back. You know, Jesus comes in incarnation, but he's really taken you back to the new Eden. And so you get um, Moses and Elijah, You know, the text tells us Moses and Elijah, dead guys. And suddenly they're alive, which must have been startling. You know, so it's like the live guys are dead and the dead guys are alive and Jesus, you know, everything is kind of upside down. Well, I mean, the point of all that, um, and I made you a copy of this, I just think, you know, this is about, this thing that we ran as a margin comment last week, that's about as good a thing as a human being can write. And the great thing about, you know, the worldwide Christian church right now is we have some very pastoral guys who are at very high levels. Um, We just happened to see the clip of, of Kirby and I, I don't even know why, it was. we just happened to see the clip of, 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 of the Pope making Dolan a cardinal. And Kirby sort of remarked how gentle and pastorally and kindly the Pope touched him you know people people can give you the brush off when they're in a very high level there's very few people you know the president the pope there's very few people kind of at that level but to see that kind of pastoral gentleness well you know the archbishop of canterbury is the same way you have this deeply pastoral guy and and part of it is for lent here's the deal you you and i you know we move through life and we're pretty analytical and one of the you know one of the interesting things about you is you're you're pretty successful and you're pretty straightforward and one of the really interesting things is you all have a different metric, and I always learn this in any set of volunteers, every volunteer because you 're all used to you know measuring success and having goals and having visions, but yet they don 't match you know, which is okay because one of you you know acts like a builder and another acts like a developer and another acts like a consultant and another acts like you know an insurance guy and another, and you 're all successful and you 've got this way, this path through life that has been successful. And frankly, you're smart enough to know that if it wouldn't have been successful, you'd change it. And so they all collide in the church. And what we want, of course, is the church to be successful. So, you know, it's sort of which one is going to win out and how are we going to do that. And then you get this where he sort of says, you know, um, I'm not quite so sure. So, in the second paragraph, in Jesus, the world of ordinary prosaic time is not destroyed. So, Jesus doesn't come to destroy you, they don't die. But it is broken up and reconnected. So basically what happens is Jesus takes you apart and puts you back together again. That's what happens during Lent. Every Lent he takes you apart and he puts you back together again. It works no longer just in straight lines. This is how it works and this is how everything should work. And I'm a banker so the church should run like a bank. Or I'm a builder so the church should run like a building. Or I'm a software guy so the church should run like software. You know, I'm a car guy so the church should run like a car. No, here's the deal. It works not just in straight lines, but in layers and spirals of meaning. Okay, what in the world does that mean? We begin to understand how our lives, like those of Moses and Elijah, and here's the payoff, may have meanings we can't know in this present moment. So here's the thing. What you think your life is worth, right now, on this day, Jesus may have a very different idea about what your life is worth. You may think your life is worthless. Jesus has a very different idea. You may think you've got everything going on. Jesus may have a very different idea. Okay? We have meanings we can't know in the present moment. The real depth and significance of what we say or do now won't appear until more of the light of Christ has been seen. You're going to hear it in the Gospel for next week, Peter, right there who's already seen the transfiguration, is going to try to take control of the crucifixion and the gospel for next week. Jesus is going to say, I'm going to set my face toward Jerusalem, and I'm going to go and be crucified. And Peter's going to say, actually, that's a really bad idea. That just does not work out for people. They're not attracted to that. You know, it's a waste of energy. My position will probably be diminished. It'll mean a cut and pay for all of us. I mean, Peter just says, you know, it's really a straight line to the kingdom of God. And then, of course, you know what Jesus says to him. Um, Satan boy, get to the back of the line, right? Because we can't really see what our lives mean. I mean, this is true, if you talk to old parents, older parents, you know. One of the joys of being an older parent is, you know, your kids, uh, you know, they're fine till they're about 12. Then they turn into complete idiots till they're about 25, and then they unidiotize somehow, you know, and they come back to you and you're like, you stayed the course, but you had that 13 years where you couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. Is this not happened to any of you? Maybe it's just, <laughs> maybe it's just me, you know. And you think to yourself, what in the world? And there's all this temptation, you know, and I always, I sign the letters, but it always grieves me when somebody says to me, we're leaving St. John because my kid has decided we're going to go to another church. They like that better. And, of course, what I always think is, why don't you let your kid decide how to invest your 401K? (laughs) I mean, pick a small thing. Maybe your kid thinks you should maybe quit law and be a green grocer. Why don't you let your kid decide on your career? Why would you let your kid decide on the most important thing, which is where you get the Eucharist. It is the most important thing in life. It's the most important thing that you'll do. Why would you let your kid... at 14 or 16 or 18, make that decision for the family. Why would you let them do that? They don't know anything. They're dumb as a post, okay? <laughs> but you're gonna let them make the most critical decision for the family, really? You're really gonna do that? I mean, okay, I, you know, on the far side of that is, you know, and, then, and sometimes that lasts a lifetime. I mean, sometimes it lasts a lifetime. And people, people come to think that the church should be what they want it to be rather than what the church is, which is the narrow way, which is the way of discipline, which is the way of mercy, which is not the way of power, which is the crooked way, not the straight way. Luther, you know, G- Jesus rides a lame horse and shoots with a crooked bow. And he still gets all his work done. Or he said, you know, uh, I've struck against the Pope and the Emperor. Now um, let's sit back and see what the Lord will do. Or, I never really did anything. All I really ever did was drink beer with my friends in Wittenberg, and it was the Holy Spirit who got it all done. Really? Okay. You really can't see, and this really is maturity talking, you cannot see in real time if your life matters or not. You cannot see, the, the world is filled with illusion. If you have a lot of money, you think you're smart. You might have just got lucky, you know? If your kids turn out okay, you think you're a great parent. Maybe you were, but sometimes you get great kids in spite of idiot parents, right? Right? This happens. I mean, you think it doesn't, but it does. You cannot, we are very poor, and we're the worst at seeing ourselves. We're, it's, it's the absolute worst at trying to evaluate our own lives. We're just horrible because we're so filled with self-deception, and our own emotions and our own thoughts which is why, at the first level, the church has always talked about self, uh, uh, about spiritual direction. At the next level, spiritual directors were never sort of on their own. They were always in a community. Benedict, you know, for example, or um, Saint Francis. There was in a community where everything got tested out right? It, you weren't on your own. And beyond that, then the church gets tested out for 2,000 or 4,000 years. You actually know something has worked. If, if, you, if something has worked for about 3,000 years, you can kind of be confident it's going to work today till 5. You, you really can, okay? I mean, just, just relax and sort of let it wash over you. Well, all of that has happened in the icon. So basically, what this is telling you, what this is meant to tell you, is your life is a jumble, When Jesus looks at you, this is what happens. Your life is a jumble. And yet there's hope in the icon. Why? Because it actually is about light, and it's not about darkness. And it is about passage through. And it's not about being static. It is about growing up and being dynamic. It's about living. It's not about dying. They don't die. Even the dead guys are alive. And at the end of the day, what happens is, Jesus tells you what your life is worth. Jesus tells you. So if you're honest, that matters. If you can do what you're told, that matters. If you don't lie, that matters. If you're generous, that matters. If you can come to Lent and say to your enemies, your worst enemies, wouldn't you like some mercy? Now, be very careful, because mercy doesn't mean what you think it means. Mercy means confession, forgiveness, restitution, and life together. It doesn't mean we act like stuff never happened. It means confession and forgiveness and restitution and life together. That's what happens Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, Saturday, and Easter, Sunday. That's what happens with Jesus. He's utterly abandoned. He dies. He rises. He comes to people he should destroy who betrayed them. He restored them. They fall on their faces, my Lord and my God. And then he says, I'll meet you and tell you how we're going to go next. All of that happens, you see. So, the church is not what you think the church is. Your life is not what you think your life is. Jesus prescribes your life kindly and mercifully and always with a way out. And all of that is up in the icon. Um... You know, we can also think of how the shape of our own lives is finally going to be in God's hands, not ours. So your life isn't in God's hands. You say every night, I pray that you say, thy will be done. Or into your hands I commend my spirit, Jesus' final words on the cross. Like Moses and Elijah, we don't yet know what we shall be. Our time, our stories about ourselves, our histories are the best we can do from where we stand and look. Do your best. We spent a whole year talking about what your best is. You remember? 2003. Your best is, according to Scripture, selfless love, utter obedience, and mature judgment coming from selfless love and utter obedience. You know what's best when you grow up in the faith. That's the beginning of Philippians chapter 1. We don't know what we shall be. Our time, our stories about ourselves, our histories are the best we can do from where we stand and look. Hope, this is the hope. But God's perspective can do strange things with history. See that? Or the one that we have. That's your king on the cross. God's perspective can do strange things with history. And we're not the best judges of the meanings of our live, lives. What really matters to God what shows God to the world. But we are given a glimpse of what God can do in the rare moment of direct vision when the door to perception is opened by and in Jesus and the end of the world is fleetingly there before us. And finally, we can let ourselves contemplate the fact that the divine freedom shown us in this vision tells us both there is no escape from the world. Jesus doesn't escape the world. Jesus takes the worst that the world has to give. He takes the best in this icon. In our icon, he takes the worst. He has the worst that the world can do to him. This is the best that they can happen. right? Now, can you just flip forward to our icon, John? This is the best thing that can happen. okay? And that's the worst thing that can happen. So those are the bookends on all of life. The best thing that can happen and the worst thing that can happen. There it is, transfiguration on the cross... There's no escape from the world. We live between those two icons. All your life is between those two icons, the transfiguration and the crucifixion, in which we have been put as creatures, and there is nowhere from which God can be finally exiled. So you live between the two icons, but every place in between, God is with you. If you live or if you die, God is with you. The same God who flashes bright and is in complete control and is gathering you back to Eden, transfiguration, is the same God that dies a worse death. There is nobody in this room who is going to die a worse death than Jesus died. One of the reasons, people always want to know why there's a crucifixion. The reason there's a crucifixion is so that nobody can ever say, I had it worse than Jesus had it. He's an innocent man. All his friends have left him. He has an unfair trial. And he's killed as a rebel when he was actually the most compliant, kind person that ever lived. None of us are going to have a worse death than that. And the death was by crucifixion. No matter how bad it gets for us, it's never going to be like that. And then, of course, the other side of that is Easter. That he... um, takes that and, and, and goes with us. This is the great challenge to faith, knowing that Christ is in the heart of darkness. That was, You had two quotes about that today, especially the one by Boylan. You just do what you're meant to do. I've talked to you before about Mother Teresa, where she, you know, she's the one everybody respects. She said in her whole life she had 11 weeks of light and 50 years of darkness. She had a couple of weeks when she rode the train for the first time to Calcutta, and she took a sabbatical... She had eight weeks of light in about her 42nd year or something like that. And she said the rest of her life was darkness, but she just did what Jesus told her to do. And everybody in the world recognizes that she did what was right. But she you know, had 11 weeks of respite in 50 or 60 years of working in the worst slums in the world. that, you know, is obedience. That is knowing the God of transfiguration and also the God on the cross. This is the great challenge to face. Knowing that God is in the heart of darkness, we are called to go there with him. In John 11, Thomas says to the other disciples, let's go and die with him. And ahead indeed lies his death, the dead Lazarus decaying in the tomb, the death of Jesus in abandonment, your death and mine, and the death of countless human beings in various kinds of dark night. But, if we have seen his glory on the mountain, we know at least... Whatever our terrors, whatever you suffer, okay? whatever it is, whatever it is, that death cannot decide the boundaries of God's life. That is brilliant. Death cannot decide the boundaries of God's life. Your experience is not the boundary of God's action. Whatever your experience is, your experience is not the boundary of God's action. God is at work in ways you could never comprehend. God evaluates your life in a way that you could never understand. God is not bounded by your experience. With him the door is always open and no one can shut it. That's great stuff. Okay, so here's what we'll do. It's Jonathan, to prevent Mueller from saying time, (laughs) (coughs) which is I actually love you for this. It's a way that you love me back. Um, Here's what we're going to do. I need two things from you. One is um, we are going to talk about our crucifix next week, but I, it needs to be set up in that boundary. So I want you to really look hard to to read the crucifix. Spend some time this week. Just There's copies back there. Just spend some time just looking at it. I have, you know, analytical, artistic analyses from a couple of you, which are really quite remarkable, which I guarantee the iconographer was not thinking about. You see things that she never intended. That happens when people write novels, too. You know, they write, and they have no idea what they're writing or what it will spur in you. So um, you go home and see that if you put the axis through the nose and through the eyes and you look across the nimbus that it actually makes a Cairo. Go see if you can figure that out. I guarantee you she did not intend that. But when you see it there, it's like, what the heck? How did that happen? Okay, just see, you know with the tilt of the head and the, and the axis of the eyes and the nose and the nimbus. Just see, you know. It's something I never saw till one of you sort of said, well, that's pretty cool, Hodgson. Huh? I'm like, really? So um, look at that. Then the other thing I would like to do is, if you could start to make a list of anything else in there that puzzles you or needs to be explained, that would be extraordinarily helpful for me. Because I have a few more things that I want to do, but as I'm looking around, I'm thinking, yeah, we did that, we did that, we did that. So if there's other things that need to be explained, I actually need to know from you so that we can sort of fit things together. Because what I'd like to do um, um, is actually go down one morning. We can't take coffee, but we'll go down one morning and we'll just start to walk around or we'll just sit and look. And I just want to see how many pieces you can now fit together. Because what what I want to happen, that was the bare minimum sanctuary. That was the, hey, we've got a couple million dollars, not four million dollars or ten million dollars. That was the bare minimum there's so much going on. You have to think, one, can I connect all the pieces? And then someday you have to think 10 or 20 or 30 years out, if you're still in this space, what's the next things that need to be done? But that needs to be done thoughtfully and prayerfully within this greater context of God looking at you and working on you. Make sense? So I need to know what you're thinking about. Like, this doesn't make sense, or why is that there? Why didn't you do that? For example, the great secret of why there's you know three lights hung on the on the pulpit side, and no lights on the, on, the, on the lectern side? Why, why is that? Yeah, because the Chinese shipped them in two lots, and one of them got held up for an extra six months in customs. See? Everything means something. All right? So, you know, they're supposed to come this week. You know. Somebody said to me, now why are there just lights on the south side and not the north side? I'm like, yeah, because the Chinese sent them in two batches, okay? It was stupid. But what are you going to do? Thank you.